This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll. Have you ever encountered something that was not quite what it seemed? There was more to it than, than meets the eye. Uh, once, uh, many years ago, when I was a painter, and we're not talking Rembrandt here, we're talking rolling out uh, whitewashing uh, cinder block walls at a college campus about five minutes from here. Um, I had this job several summers in a row, and, and it happened to be that the summer that Julie and I got married, I was a painter. And about two months into marriage, I came home one day from work and Julie was gone. She was out running an errand or something. She wasn't in the home, but everything was clean, which was amazing because we were still, you know, getting settled and unpacked and all of that. Everything was cleaned up, all in order. I walked in the kitchen and there on the pristine, empty table was a small glass of, of water right on the corner, inviting as if to say, take, drink, slake thy thirst. And I thought in my heart, what a thoughtful, tender, loving wife I have. She knew I'd come home from work all sweaty and hot. And here is a cup, a glass of water just for me. But things are not always what they seem. She had been cleaning. And what was actually in that glass was not the clear liquid H2O, but in fact, ammonia, which probably could kill you, I guess, because what happened is I grabbed that glass and in one motion, I drink, turn, spit into the sink. And then I think what I did is I grabbed bread that was nearby and shoveled bread into my mouth to soak up whatever this poisonous thing was inside of me and started spitting the bread back out. And I thought, only two months and she's already trying to poison me. Things are not always what they seem. There's often more than meets the eye. So with our story here in Mark chapter 10, the story of blind Bartimaeus is not what it seems at first. We think, oh, just another healing story. Jesus healing another blind person. He's done that before. Um, But for starters, we get it all backwards. Bartimaeus is not the one who is blind. And you might look at the story and say, well, actually, Brett, that's what the story says. He's the blind beggar. Okay, but the story is telling us something more. Bartimaeus is not the one who is blind. It is everybody else in the story. And we are to read this as saying, and we ourselves, every one of us is also blind. We are the blind ones. Bartimaeus is not. Or better yet, Maybe put it this way, the subtext, the hidden message of the story is that really there are two kinds of vision. One physical, natural, these eyes that we have, we see. But another is an inward sight, a spiritual vision. What Paul says when he's writing to Ephesians, uh, to the Ephesians in chapter one, he says, I pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be given to you so that the eyes of your heart may be opened. and You can see with spiritual vision, a second kind of sight. And while yes, Bartimaeus was blind with his physical, natural eyes, he could see very well with his spiritual vision, his spiritual eyes. And the point of this story and the point of our sermon this morning is is for us to know that we are blind, every one of us, because of sin, we're blind. 
We have a spiritual blindness that needs to be healed. We need Jesus to do for us spiritually what he did for Bartimaeus physically. We need him to open our eyes. And today we are going to see that Jesus came to restore to every one of us, to each of us who asks to restore spiritual vision so that we can set our eyes upon eternity and the things of heaven. So if we look at our story, beginning there in verse 46, Jesus came to Jericho and then he's leaving Jericho. We don't know exactly how long he stayed, a few hours maybe, maybe a couple days, but he's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And he's surrounded by a crowd also going up with him. Yes, because of the feast, but also because they are interested in Jesus. Could he be the Messiah? They're following him to see. Now the crowd is unusually big, such that Bartimaeus, who's a blind beggar and probably sat in the same spot day after day, he notices something unusual is going on. This is not just the ordinary commotion of a crowd. This is not even just the ordinary commotion of a festival crowd, which again, he would have been used to. And so he asks, what's going on? And he finds out it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's about to pass by. And as soon as Bartimaeus hears that it is Jesus, everything changes for him. He's heard the report of this man from Nazareth. He's heard this is a man who heals men who are blind. And he begins to cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. Now this is important, that title, son of David, it is a messianic title. It shows us that Bartimaeus, again, with that inner vision, that spiritual sight, he saw something that nobody else was seeing. In Mark's gospel, Bartimaeus is the only one who calls Jesus son of David. I see the Jew are the fulfillment of the prophets who said that the Messiah would be a descendant of David and sit on the throne of David. I see that you're him. And I know the prophecies that also said the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind. And I've heard that you've even done it already. And so in desperation, saying, I'm not gonna miss my chance. Here he comes, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd, they shush him, they rebuke him. Strong language. You rebuke somebody when they're not doing something or when they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. Stop making a scene, it's inappropriate. And he doesn't care. I love, don't you love it? Verse 48, he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's not going to miss his chance. He knows that healing is near to him. And he's going to make sure that Jesus hears it. And Jesus does. Amidst the din and commotion of the crowd, Jesus' ears, they are attentive. All of the sound, imagine all of the sounds. And yet in the crowd, Jesus hears the cry of faith. Oh. There's somebody who knows who I am and they need me. And this is why I've come. And so Jesus, of course, what's he gonna do? He's gonna stop in his tracks. He's gonna turn and he calls the blind beggar. Now the crowd changes his to its tune. Oh, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And he throws off his cloak. He springs up coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, the humility of our Lord, the openness, the unassuming 
What do you want me to do for you? A whole sermon could be written about that question from Jesus' lips, but not today. He asks the blind man, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. And in this, we see a parable of the whole story of salvation. Blind Bartimaeus, he stands for all of humanity. Once we saw God, we walked with God. In the garden before sin, we saw him face to face in his glory and we lost all of that when we sinned. And in our disobedience, we became blind. And this is the blindness, the spiritual blindness that every single one of us has. And so like Bartimaeus, we need to say, let me recover. The human race needs to say, oh God, we want to see you again. We want to know you again. Open our eyes again. Let me recover my sight. So Bartimaeus was not born blind. He had been able to see and he lost his sight. And that's why it's the parable of the human race. We saw God once and we lost it. And now, thanks be to God, the good news is God has come to us to say, I want you to see me again. I want you to know me again. And he has come to heal that spiritual blindness. And when somebody comes to Jesus and they know that he died on the cross to forgive their sins, when somebody has the eyes of their heart open, the same thing happens for them that happened for Bartimaeus. What was the first thing that Bartimaeus saw? Who was the first person he saw? God in the flesh. And so when the veil is removed, when our eyes are open, the eyes of our heart, we see Jesus for who he truly is. We see God in the flesh again, like we did in the garden long ago. So this morning, do you have that desperation of Bartimaeus? Do you want to see Jesus for who he truly is? Do you believe that Jesus is more than just meets the eye, that there's more to him to get to know and to see, to be revealed to you? And the good news is, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, there's always more to know. He can strengthen that spiritual vision. We can see him more clearly. And Jesus stands here today and he says to you what he says to, said to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus is so desiring that you would say back to him, Lord, I want to see. Open my eyes. I want to see with spiritual vision. Give me that second sight with the same desperation as Bartimaeus who would not be silenced but cried out a second time all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Are we desperate to see the Lord? To know him more clearly, to see him more strongly. Son of David, open my eyes. I'm blind until you open the eyes of my heart. So don't let Jesus pass you by today. Don't let this be just another Sunday. Jesus, son of David, Messiah, almighty King, God in our midst, Emmanuel, healer, savior, Lord, have mercy on me. Don't miss your chance. Jesus is eagerly searching for those who like Bartimaeus know their need and know and understand that he alone is the one who can meet that need. And of course, there may be many needs that you are bringing today and 
Jesus wants to hear any of them without reproach. He says, what do you want me to do for you? But at the very least, every single one of us can today ask, Lord, would you heal my spiritual vision? It's getting a little blurry. Or maybe you know, I've been spiritually blind my whole life. I maybe even been coming to church my whole life. I've never seen Jesus like that. Open my eyes. Let today be the day that Jesus opens your eyes, heals you and gives you that second sight. Jesus came to restore to every one of us that spiritual vision and to enable us then to set our sights on heaven and the things of eternity. So we're gonna actually pivot now a little bit. We're gonna take a look at our epistle reading, which is on page 966 in your pew Bible, or it's 2 Corinthians chapter four. And we're gonna begin to discover and understand what is one of the key effects, one of the primary things that happens to us when our spiritual vision is restored? What happens? How does it change our lives? There are two primary things that I would say spiritual vision healed and restored does. The first is it helps us see deeper, helps us see below just the surface of things, deeper than just the surface of things. We see into the spiritual dimension of situations or events or even people. We see the way the Spirit of God sees. That's called discernment. And those of us who are following Jesus, we're asking to always grow get stronger and stronger in our discernment, that ability to see deeper than just the surface of things. Again, that too could be a whole other sermon. We're not gonna talk about discernment today. I wanna talk about the second thing that happens when our spiritual vision is restored. Not only do we see deeper than the surface of things, but now we have a vision that enables us to see farther, farther into the future, yes, even past this world, and to begin to see into the world that is to come. Eternal things, heavenly realities. When our spiritual vision is restored, we begin to see into eternity. And we're actually supposed to be focused there. So let's take a look now. Second Corinthians chapter four. We're gonna start at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, the apostle Paul says. And he had just been talking about how he's been crushed persecuted, beat down to the point of almost giving up. And he turns and says, but we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, when he says light momentary affliction, what is he talking about? He's talking about the sufferings of life here in this world, the sufferings of life on earth. And you might be angry that Paul would call it light momentary affliction. But before you get too angry, keep in mind the apostle Paul suffered himself physically, spiritually. He suffered like few in the history of the world have suffered. He knows physical suffering. He knows suffering. And yet he calls it light, momentary affliction. Why? Because he's comparing it to what is to come. And he says it's a drop in a bucket compared to what's to come. An eternal weight of glory, eternal, forever, unfading, never diminishing, not one bit diminishing, but actually ever increasing 
the glory of eternity. And it's a weight of glory, he says, meaning it's substantial, that what is yet to come is actually gonna be more real and the glory more weighty, substantial than any glory that we've experienced or know now in this life. And he says, it is beyond all comparison, meaning that no experience that we've had can help us even begin to imagine what is to come. Infinitely better that the very best of this life is meant to be simply a foretaste, a glimpse, and even that doesn't capture it. And he's saying, if we only knew, and if only we believed and had that spiritual sight to see far enough into the future and we saw ourselves in the glory of the coming kingdom, we too could say these light momentary afflictions. And we wouldn't get angry about that. And verse 18 as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Two ways of seeing, do you catch that? Not the things that you can see with your physical eyes, but the things that you can only see with spiritual vision in the eyes of the heart. He says that is the vision that we're more interested in. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Look around you, everything you see will pass away. By very nature of the fact that you can see it and touch it means that it is transient, that in only a matter of time, whether it's a hundred years or a thousand years, this sanctuary will not be here anymore. Everything that you see is passing. And it's the things that we cannot see with the physical eyes, the things that are spiritual in nature that are eternal. Even these bodies that we see will not last forever. We will have new glorified resurrection bodies. Yes, but everything we see here is passing away. I was with some friends uh, recently, some younger people of a new generation, and they had just recently discovered those three-dimensional pictures, you know, where you, you open up the book and there's this splatter of all these different colors of dots. And if you look correctly, if, if you know how to focus your eyes, then all of a sudden from a two-dimensional splattering of dots, out comes a dog or a baseball bat or some picture, three-dimensional, without cheating and using the 3D glasses. You could do this with your eyes, but here's how it works. It all depends on where your focus is. So the trick is you look off in the distance and then you bring the picture up in front of you and without changing your focus, because normally we then look close at hand, but while still looking focused in the distance, you look what's right in front of you and that's when the 3D images emerge. And Paul is saying, where is our focus? Is it at the things near to hand or is it the things that are eternal? And he says, our focus is on the unseen and the eternal. And he continues, now look at chapter five, verses one through five. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, meaning this body, meaning this life on earth, if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's contrasting tent, which is temporary, to building house, something more permanent. And he's saying what is to come is the permanent thing. And we long to put on our heavenly dwelling, he says. And he says, it's not that we want to disregard this life. It's not that we want to be unclothed with the glory of this life. But he says, there's a greater glory to come. And in verse four, that's why he uses this beautiful language that what is mortal, 
our mortal life, which yes, is good and yes, a gift from God. But he's saying the goal is that what is mortal will then be swallowed up by what is immortal. Life will be swallowed up by life with a capital L. And yes, this life is good and this body is good, but it's pointing us to something that is even greater yet to come. And we will be swallowed up. We will be all consumed by the glory and the vision of eternal life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So some of you, your focus, your focus is, is on the temporary. As Paul is contrasting the temporary versus the permanent, do you realize that lately in your life, your, your focus is getting on the things of this earth, the temporary? You're forgetting what is most important about you. You're forgetting where your true identity lies and where your permanent home, your true home is. What verse two, Paul calls your heavenly dwelling. And I know the objection. I've heard it many times. It'd be something that I could have a longer conversation with you about it if this is your objection because this would be something important to get clear. The objection is, hey, if we're too focused on heaven, what's the rest of this? We'll be worthless with the things of earth. Okay? If we're too focused on heaven, we'll be no earthly good. That's the objection. That's why that 3D picture is, is actually a really helpful analogy. Because with that 3D picture, where is your focus? Your focus is in the distance, but what are you looking at? You're looking at something that's right in front of you. So be clear. We're not unaware of what is happening around us. We're not unaware of life as it's happening and unfolding before our eyes. Indeed, we're meant to be very involved in life right around us, but we do it with our focus on eternity. Not focused on the temporary, focused on what's eternal, and yet able to deal with right in front of us in the appropriate way, the way that you actually are free to do when you know where your true home lies. As Christians, we're not unaware of what goes on by no means, but we deal with what's in front of us with the hope and our focus on eternity and all that is to come and shall be when Jesus returns and brings his kingdom. So again, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us in eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Back to the objection. Does it, let's ask the question for Paul himself, because he's the one writing this. Does Paul's focus on eternal and heavenly things make him earthly useless? Well, look at verse six, let's keep reading. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, this life, we're away from the Lord, where we'll be with him forever. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Or another way of saying we walk by a spiritual vision, not by our physical vision. And yes, he repeats, we are of good courage. So is his heavenly focus, is it useless? No, on earth it's giving him courage. Who doesn't want courage in this life? Who doesn't want to be around people who are courageous? 
it's helping him actually deal with the suffering of his life. Twice he says, we're of good courage. Even though we're being beaten down, persecuted, pushed aside, crushed, almost to the point of despair, but not. We're of good courage. And yes, we'd rather be away from the body and with the Lord, but whether we're at home or we're away, we make it our aim to please him. We spend our lives. We say, what I've been given, I will spend it for the Lord. That's not being useless. That's being very useful. And if you know the story of the Apostle Paul, he was very useful. He did a lot of things. His hope of heaven didn't make him lazy in regards to the things of earth. And look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So he's saying, yes, this life absolutely matters. In fact, everything we do and everything we say will be revealed and shown on the day of judgment when Christ returns. And that's part of his motivation to say, I wanna run the race well. I wanna run the race well because I know everything I do is so important, it will actually be revealed on the day of judgment. But he says, how do you run well? By focusing on the finish line and beyond. That's how you do it. So he runs with the focus on eternity, still able to deal with what is close at hand. So when we have our spiritual vision restored, when we look ahead to the hope of heaven, it produces in us the joy that helps us push through the sufferings of this life. So remember when Peter's writing his epistle, he covers a lot of this same material. Let me read a little bit to you. Listen first for the hope of heaven as it relates to suffering and steadfastness under trial. And then what does it produce at the end? So he says, you have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. You have, now here's the hope of heaven, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So put your focus where your inheritance is who by God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, at the day of Jesus. In this you rejoice, he says, though now for a little while, yes, you will suffer various trials. Amen. We know that's true. But he says this is for testing, to test the genuineness of your faith because you're being refined like gold in the fire, which is refined by the fire and tested And this will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So on that day when he comes again, every moment where you chose faith and perseverance instead of giving up and despair, every time you do, every little moment that right now is seen by God alone, that will be revealed on that last day. And it will be a glory and all of heaven will rejoice. Though you have not Seeing him, Peter goes on to say, you've not seen him with these eyes, with physical sight. You've not seen him, yet you love him. You've seen him with these eyes, the eyes of the heart. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible joy filled with glory. For you are obtaining, you're receiving, you're getting what you hope for, the salvation of your souls. The people in the history of the church who made the most difference in their life on earth were those who had their eyes set on heaven and the reward and all that is to come. 
There's a story that I like to tell that, that illustrates how a future hope can actually change your, how you go through your current circumstances. So it, it actually is back to my Rembrandt days when I was a painter. Uh, the, this is now the summer before we were not yet married. In fact, I was working overtime to save up for the ring. And the whole summer, Julie was gone. She was overseas. And at the end of the summer, I had a, a trip booked, planned. The tickets were bought. I was going to fly down to Atlanta and spend a week with Julie and her family. And the whole summer, I was working up to that point. Save money. I was going to see Julie again. And it happened that two days before my trip, my boss grabbed me and he said, all right, so we've got this, this guy, Andy, Reed, top of the totem pole. He's really fast. He just did a big job down in Naperville. And uh, what I'd like to do would really help me out as the boss is to move him on to the next job. And it really would help Andy out and help me out as the boss to have him move on without having to do the cleanup. So you, Reed, low man on the totem pole, I need you to go to this really big house and clean up after him. Now, here's the unique thing about this house. Not only was it a big house, but around this house, it was completely surrounded by a wooden moat of wood chips, thick wood chips everywhere. And there were paint chips that had fallen into the wood chips all around the house. And the boss said, there's no tool. There's, there's no way to clean this up except just hands and knees picking it out. And, and I, I need Andy on another job. So Brett, the next two days, you're, you're going to be picking paint chips out of the wood chips. <laughs> of all my jobs that summer, all my tasks, that was by far the most tedious, backbreaking, boring task I had been assigned. But do you want to know what I was thinking about the whole time? What was I thinking about? I've got a plane ticket. And nothing's gonna stop me in two days from being on that plane or nothing's gonna stop me tomorrow. I'm gonna be on that plane. I can, I'll send whatever you throw at me, paint chips and the wood chips. I will pick them up all day long because tomorrow I'm gonna see the woman I love. And I've been waiting for this moment all summer long. I haven't seen her. I can't wait. And so how did I go through that day? The tedious monotony of that chore. I did it with hope. I did it with joy. I did it with even energy. And that's how when we hold on to our future hope and the promise of all that will be when Jesus comes back, it actually absolutely does change our life on earth. It gives us the courage to endure. It gives us joy amidst suffering. What gives the martyr the courage to lay down her life except to know that she will rise again with Jesus and spend forever with him? What has given countless throngs of monastics the will to give up marriage, family, and the comforts of domestic life in exchange for poverty, chastity, and submissive obedience. The belief that this life is not all there is and that what is yet to come is infinitely better than whatever it is that they're giving up. What enables people in deep suffering to go on or people to be generous and to share? What enables us to live as Jesus taught the knowledge and the vision to see this suffering will not go on forever? Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And in the end, it will be love, joy, and peace that shall last forever. And that you yourselves will know the redemption of everything that you are now suffering. You'll understand its purpose, its meaning, its place. And there will even be glory for you on that day if you persevere. So as you come to Eucharist today, isn't it amazing? Every week, 
Jesus stands and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Every week, what do you want me to do for you? Today when you come and you receive communion, let this prayer be in your heart. Jesus, heal my spiritual vision. I can't say that I'm of good courage always. I can't say that I'm always filled with inexpressible joy. So I think, Jesus, that my sight is getting a little blurry. Maybe I've lost it altogether. Or maybe you're one of those who you've never had Jesus heal your spiritual vision and you come today, let your prayer be, Rabbi, I wanna see. And may we all with unveiled face together beholding the glory of the Lord, see him and be transformed from glory to glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.